Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, Executive Editor of Recode. Thanks for listening to Recode Replay. Here's one of the interviews from the stage of Code Commerce 2017 in New York City. If you like it, please leave us a review at iTunes.com slash Recode Replay. Your company, Dia & Co., uh, focuses on clothing for plus-size women. Uh, how did you get started? So, uh, first of all, happy to be here. Um, sure. Dia really started from a personal passion. Um, I've been plus-size all my life, and I've always known that there was a deeply, deeply misaligned supply and demand dynamic in plus-sizes. Um, for those of you who may not be familiar with the space, there are about 100 million women in the U.S. who wear size 14 or above, and the corresponding supply set on that market is incredibly small. And Dia really was about saying, this is a category that we know very deeply. If we were to build a business that was exclusively focused on creating the most extraordinary experiences for her, what would that look like? Um, and Dia was born. So um, today we have a flagship product that is in-home retail. Um, it allows her to shop from home, brands that we're able to curate for her uh, with an enormous amount of care given to fit and to style and to other things that are incredibly important to her. Um, and increasingly more and more ways for us to be interacting with customers. So I want to ask more specifically about that. Like, how does, how does it actually work? You, get some, you subscribe or you get something sent to you every month? It can be a subscription, but it's not required. Dia is actually not a subscription for the vast majority of our short life. Um, but she does have the opportunity to receive packages on a regular basis. The packages are curated for her um, really based on where she is in her style journey, what her fit is, what she's excited about, um, and what she might want to explore that she doesn't yet know that she might like. And there's, like a, there's a styling fee that's associated with it, right? There is a styling fee that's associated with it, and then she's able to keep what she wants. She returns what she doesn't, and it's, it's quite seamless. And styling means that there's someone at Dia who sort of comes up with a set of looks for the customer, sends it to them. If they like it, they buy it. They can send back most of it or all of it, depending upon what they want to keep. Yeah. Exactly. Um, was it easier to start that way instead of just opening up a store like it used to be? So it's an interesting question. We're, we're strong believers that um, the most traditional forms of commerce, whether they be pure play brick and mortar or pure, pure play e-commerce, on their own don't serve this customer particularly well. Right? This is a customer who has fairly distinct in-person experiences and fairly distinct fit challenges in an online context that meant that really figuring out a way that was unique to her and built around what would be most successful for her was really important, um, and this was the first step in that process. Um, you actually, you guys did something interesting, not, not this most recent Fashion Week, but the previous season for the fall looks. You took out a full-page ad in the New York Times and basically called on designers to, hey, come try to work with us. We will help you figure out how to create clothing for the majority of women in the country, basically. Absolutely, so in February we launched February was the last Fashion Week in New York. We launched um, a campaign that we called Move Fashion Forward, which was really about being as much of an advocate on her behalf as we could be, and really saying, you know, every season we see plus-size models come down the runway, increasingly more plus-size models and more designers paying attention, but how do we take bigger steps? How do we make bolder action possible, recognizing the fact that there are challenges for brands sometimes and we're uniquely equipped to help them with those challenges, and basically offered to have brands work with us to help enter the space. I mean, why did you need to do that? Was it just, as you point out, there's a huge market for plus-size clothing. It's just yeah. that a lot, of, a lot of designers, a lot of places don't create clothing for that, for that, for that woman? Absolutely. So the supply in the space is incredibly constrained. I think that there are a lot of retailers that are still struggling and brands who are struggling to figure out 
how to engage, how to do it well, how to really be successful in speaking to a customer that's been outside of their core customer for so long. Um, and that's you know, what we're here for. So part of it is you're educating, in a way, some of, the, some of the industry in terms of how to do this. Yeah, so a big part of it is understanding how to get fit right in this category, which is non-trivial. A big part of it is actually having access to distribution, which our channels allow us to do very easily. A big part of it is understanding how to speak to this customer for their first time in a way where she knows that she's understood and she feels celebrated and she's excited to be a part of the conversation. Um, Rachel, you, you uh, work with Tia on a plus size line. Did you see the ad? Is that part of what inspired you to come along or did you already have that in your head that you wanted to do this for a while and just didn't find the right outlet for it? When I heard about her company, it was, um, at the time, very out of the box. So she's absolutely right. It just doesn't exist, and it doesn't exist even enough today. And when we partnered with her about a year ago, um, it just makes sense. So it's like partnering with any um, online service, or really even any buyer that I work with. It's the exact same process and it just makes sense. But in her case, it's um, something that they specialize in. And so whenever I can sell my product to a home base that specializes in, in other words, the customer feels like um, they're going to a taste maker that really knows what uh, works for them. So they don't have to guess and they don't really have to return because everything will be a success. For me, that's a no-brainer. Why did you, but why did you want to jump into this area? It's just curious, like what, what led you to, to want to sort of service or, and make clothing for this woman? Besides jumping into business with her specifically? And, and, that, and also, but in this line of clothing in terms of plus size, as, as we pointed out earlier, a lot of designers don't always do that and it takes a while for them to kind of adapt into it. Well, again, it was a no-brainer. So when I did personal appearances, it was the uh, request that I got the most was what I call curvy. So it's plus size, but I like to call it curvy. And I wanted to actually start it much sooner. And in order to start any new category, whatever it is, curvy, shoes, swim, you have to have the funding, of course. And not only that, but you have to have a partner with shared values. So someone that actually wants to do what you want to do, because it does take a lot of money to start up any new area of your business, any new aspect. So I would have started a lot sooner if I could have. And once I could, once I found a partner that had shared values and would put um, funds into that area specifically for me, I just took designs off of my contemporary collection. So we had a lot of the infrastructure there already. I hired a partner in my fit model. So for me, that was my secret sauce. Um, a fit model when very, very um, experienced. So in other words, someone my age that has been doing this a very long time can come in and tell you how things fit, what to change, and really understands a pattern that is so invaluable. And so for so me, that's what... fit model for, I don't know, is typically size what in the industry? In contemporary, yeah. it could be anything from a four to an eight. So you're having to find someone who, you know... A plus size. size. Uh, exactly, right. That's a different... for me. Right. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit, Rachel, about some of the maybe misconceptions for designers who want to launch plus? I think a lot of brands you know, when they get it wrong, it's because they're just sort of scaling up and making everything bigger, which is obviously not how it goes. Um, can you talk maybe about some of the specifics of sort of how you tackled that process and, you know, maybe anything that was unexpected from it? 
Sure. So really, it was quite seamless. I was already in the business of making product, and there was a huge white space to create product in larger sizes. And I felt I should just be creating the same product. I didn't think that I had to reinvent the wheel. I was already servicing a woman, and so why not service women in, in other sizes? So for me, um, that part was very seamless. Actually, we, I think we have some video we can show about what we're talking about. You had some looks at the, at, for Dia that showed last week. Uh, I think it's a really short clip. Tiffany, I think you want to ask about these looks. Yeah, can we roll absolutely. This? The look behind her shoulders for this. So Rachel, can you tell us a little bit about the kind of inspiration for this collection that you showed? Sure, so we are looking at fall, what we're currently selling, and I'm a strong believer in showing things that you can sell and that you can buy. I think that um, although couture should probably have to be hand sewn and you should wait for it, I don't think that we're living in a society um, where that's just modern to do you know, the old version of Fashion Week. So we showed what we're selling and um, I'm very much a believer in dressing women for work and what they need to wear to work, but um, with a fashion twist, so not your basics. And I'm very much a believer in someone that is super busy from 8 in the morning until 8 p.m. And so those are the types of looks that you will see down my runway. So you're actually, that's interesting, you're showing fall in fall. You typically, <laughs> Fashion Week, you're showing at this part of the, the season looks for spring. You get flop the other round. The reason why is you need to have a lead time to produce the clothing. Is this changing? Is this, are you able to do this? Are you able to turn around and, and, and get these into stores, get the buys in pretty quickly that way? Is that work? When I first started about 15 years ago, we only showed about six months in advance. And times are just changing. And so I feel like changing either before you're asked to change or at least currently um, is the only way to go in business, especially as a business owner. You never want to be asked to change. And so for me, I think fashion really doesn't have rules. And if you want to continue to show six months in advance, fine, you can do that. But uh, for my customers, it, it just works much better this way. With social media, you have access and people really don't want to wait. They want to purchase and get on with their lives. I see it now, I want it now. Is that, so Nadia, how do you see that? Uh, is you seeing that same phenomenon with, with your customers? Absolutely, so that was one of eight collections that came down the runway on Friday at our runway show, and all of them were available for purchase immediately. I think it's incredibly important to really shorten the conversations that we're having with consumers and be able to respond much more quickly to the feedback that we're hearing, and to allow them to participate in the conversation even sooner in that process. Um, so it was really exciting to be able to have Really what I think is one of the final frontiers for the plus size market is to move, the first step in this conversation was representation and beginning to have plus size models in, in shows from Christian Siriano and others like Rachel who've really been kind of at the forefront of this conversation to saying not only are we gonna show these looks, you're gonna be able to have these looks in your closet this month. So part of what your service is, I mean, the styling element is a huge part of the value beyond just, I can try this on at home, you know, and figure out if I like it and send it back, the convenience of having that. How does the styling work exactly? How do you put together looks for so many different customers? Even though they might all be plus size, they're all different people, they have different sensibilities, different styles. How do you do that? So I think that the exercise for us actually starts a little bit higher because we knew that distribution was a key challenge in plus, but an equal challenge is actually supply. 
right? So being able to partner with incredible designers like Rachel and some of the other lines that showed, so four of the lines that showed on Friday were debuting for the first time in PLUS, is actually where the styling part of the service actually begins and being able to hear what the customer wants and not only serve her specifically the items that she's gonna receive in her package, but actually figure out whether or not those items exist and where they don't exist, actually creating them for her. Um, and that's really, I think, where the magic of Dia has come and being able to have a holistic view of her experience such that we can bring brands to market, whether it's through incredible partnerships, through our own brands, through influencers, and then within those brands, make sure that she's seeing the most relevant selection through the actual distribution. How many brands are you working with right now, actually? So we've worked with hundreds of brands and plus. We've truly worked with nearly the entire landscape. We work with brands globally. We work with retailers for whom we're the only wholesale brand. We work with influencers who are launching brands. We work with incredible partners who are in the straight size market as well as the plus size market. We've had to be very comprehensive in our approach to assortment planning simply because the product is not there. Yeah. Uh, you said you work with influencers to start brands. What, what is that? So one of, one of the really interesting conversation lines that started after the ad in February was the idea that the community wanted to be able to celebrate within the community. And you know, it was interesting to hear members of our community say, you know, we absolutely want to have more design, but we don't want necessarily to have outsiders be the determinants of whether or not we get access. So if there are voices within the community, can we raise them up? So one of the lines that showed on Friday was a debut collection from a very prominent plus-size influencer named Girl With Curves, who launched her line, Adia. Um, and really that's one of the more exciting things that we're able to do, because there are prominent tastemakers in the space, and giving them the platform um, where they can actually contribute to the style and to the fashion that customers have access to has been one of the more rewarding parts that have come out of this campaign. Right, I'm going to bug you a little bit more about this. Go for what, it. What's an influencer exactly? When you say influencer, you mean this is a, a fashion blogger maybe who has a huge following either on Instagram oh, I see. or yes, exactly. yes. Right. yes. So she's not, uh, you know, we work with Rebel Wilson as an example who is a celebrity. Um, she is a tastemaker. She has a blog. She has very well followed social media accounts, but she's not an actress or a singer or. She's just a person on the internet who happens to do it really well, has exactly. a huge following, has a sense of style. It used to be, I don't know, you, you went to fashion school, learned something, learned how to create a technical design, and then maybe you slaved away at some big brand for a while, and then maybe you got lucky and found a financier and then started your own line, and hopefully you could keep it afloat. Now you just need a good Instagram? Great Instagram. Great Instagram. Well, you need a point of view, for sure. Okay. Uh, and you need to be able to represent something for your customers. And this influencer in particular, um, her name is Tanisha Awasathi, and her blog is Girl With Curves has an incredibly distinct style within the plus size community and one that is not found through other brands or influencers or celebrities. And so being able to bring her vision to life through Dia um, was awesome. Where does your community, or where does, would you say the plus size community really interacts with each other? Is it a lot on social? Is it a lot on blogs? Is it at these sort of events like CurvyCon, which yeah. happened during Fashion Week? Yeah, so this is absolutely a digital community. The plus size shopper has actually been online for a long time and moved into e-commerce for apparel much more quickly than straight size women did, primarily because most options are online. Even for most traditional retailers, the vast majority of the assortments in plus exists online only. And so she's been used to being online for a long time. We also find that traditional, distribution, traditional discovery channels like media and magazines don't focus on this space, so this woman has created her own space online. The CurvyCon is one of the very few offline experiences for her. Can you actually explain what CurvyCon is? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the CurvyCon is a once annual, basically premier gathering of the plus size community. The brands, the influencers, 
we talk about fashion and fitness, um, relationships and careers. We get to spend time with you know, incredible designers who are focused on the space and really bring together all the things that are most special about the community in one space, which really never happens in real life. So, I mean, could you argue, Rachel, was, were you back in the day, like you would have just been called an influencer instead of like a well-known person? Or what's the, what's the difference today from when you were starting out in terms of the community and who's well-known and who can you tap into to create online, that kind of thing? How, how has that dynamic changed? Are we back to the influencer question? Yes, we're back to the influencer <laughs> question because I can't, I can't let it go. <laughs> Um, well, you know, I do want to mention that CurvyCon has only been in existence for three years, right. and I think your business about a year, a little over a year, a little, over two, little years. two years, which is fairly new. Very new. And she's already sponsoring CurvyCon, so that's huge, and that just proves what a customer base there is out there. So congratulations. Thank you. And in terms of influencers, for your question, I think it's tricky. I think that um, you have to take everything in balance. You can see something that appeals to you visually and want it, and that's great because it is very quick, it's um, speed efficient, and at the same time, you have to remain creative in what you love. So if I need to educate myself on food, I would then look up Mario and probably um, trust a lot more than I would trust someone talking about clothes, something that I know about. And so, as with anything, it's a give and take. Um, influencer is a word like supermodel. You can throw it around, it can apply or not apply. So, I mean, your label is your name, quite literally. And um, in fashion, that's not uncommon, certainly. When you're starting out, you're taking on partners, you're developing a business. I'm sure there are pitfalls to that, and there are challenges to that. What advice would you give to sort of a young budding designer today, someone who has a name, someone who might be an influencer, who's, you know, what should they avoid? What should they try to do? What did you learn from that? Well, I think with starting any business, if you're not willing to take a risk, then you probably won't have a big reward. And if you are in the business of pleasing others, you probably won't have a big reward. You have to be prepared to disagree with people, to have people upset with you, uh, including your staff or people that you need support of. And really, you do have to be a bit of a psychologist. And those of us in business or those of us that are particular, particularly creative, we don't really enjoy having to do many aspects that are required of us to run a business. And when I do talk to young people in particular, I like to let them know the pros and the cons so they can really weigh if this is something that they want to start because there's so many jobs in fashion that many people are just not aware of. Nadia, I'd love to ask you the same question actually too, especially because you're kind of coming from the perspective with DNCO of solving a problem. Like that's kind of the basis of what you guys are doing. Yeah, so we're big believers in finding a problem that you're passionate about and being solution-oriented in business building. So for us, there is an incredible problem that we knew well that exists on a massive scale that we thought we could bring pretty compelling solutions to market for, and that guides everything that we do. I, I do think that, you know, as is the case with, um, you know, incredibly talented, creative um, individuals who really want to bring a vision to life, you need to believe it in your bones and you need to have the conviction to be able to take the ups and the downs and you know have the unique form of resilience that is required from entrepreneurship because certainly 
There are very, very few parts of this journey that are easy. Um, they are all, though, ultimately rewarding. Um, and I think being able to take the good with the bad is, is what is required. So, Nadia, you went, to, you went to business school. You were at Harvard. You started this right out of business school, or were you working before you started this company? Nope. I took another job after business school um, and started it shortly thereafter. And you bootstrapped it from the beginning, first year? We did bootstrap. Uh, it's probably not a surprise to hear that there were a lot of people who did not believe that large businesses needed to exist in the plus size market. Um, and so it was hard to raise money initially. Um, that has changed. But it's been, uh, it took a little bit of time to get people behind what we were doing. You've raised 20 million plus so far, is that right? Something like that. Something like a $70 million valuation plus, is that right? Uh, that I cannot comment on. Okay, um, move on. There are, the idea of sort of a subscription or a styling service has come to the fore a lot in, in e-commerce. Uh, there's a very well-known brand called Stitch Fix that's been out there for, for a few years. They're looking possibly to go IPO even sometime soon. They're generating nearly a billion dollars in sales. Uh, so they have a very similar model to what you guys do. They started out with not plus. They just started out with dressing, you know, more traditionally the sizes that you see. Uh, but it looks like they might go out into plus as well. How do you view that? Is that big competition for you? Is that a concern? So I think it's a good question. I think it's a question that's more important in other categories than it is in ours, to be honest. I think the truth is that our category is defined as plus size apparel and not as subscription commerce. And so really thinking about what it takes to build a business that not only can participate in the space, but can truly architect a category is what you know, we're in the business of doing. So to go back a little bit to the beginning of where we started, the plus size market exists in a way where demand so meaningfully outstrips supply, right? Plus size women, which is 100 million women population, spends 20 cents on the dollar what women in smaller sizes are spending on apparel. When we look at the impact that we want to have on, on the market, creating that $80 billion in latent demand that's not being spent is where we're focused. And that really is how we define the opportunity that we're going after and the category that we plan. So your stuff is better. That's the idea. It's not simply that you're part of the value beyond just the styling and the sending the boxes is our stuff is better. So even if someone has a similar model, they may not like as much the things. Because fashion is ultimately about just you like it or you don't like it, right? It's true. I think in plus, though, a lot more is required than just a single distribution channel. Right? So you, you need to be able to create the brands. You need to be able to inspire the customer to participate. You need to be able to have a brand where she's not only understood but truly feels celebrated. And it's only when all those things come together that the conversation can shift from market share to market expansion, which is where the opportunity actually exists in Plus. How many subscribers do you have to your subscription thing? Um, so we don't reveal precise numbers around you can tell our us. customer okay. base. Okay. Um, but we have worked with over a million women. A million women, what does that mean, doing what? Um, so it can take many forms. Not all of our community are subscribers. Some of them purchase products a la carte. Some of them participate in tests that we're running. So there's a variety of, um, of different ways that they can engage with DIA. I think one of the more interesting things about the subscriber base is how diverse it is. So we work with, and this has been true from the very beginning, customers who span seven decades in age categories. Um, and have a community that directly maps to population density across the country um, with active uh, members of our community in nearly every zip code of the country. So we don't know how many subscribers you have. I'm not able to provide a more okay. precise accounting for you. Um, actually, I did have a, a question about how that, I mean, 
you're getting a box every month, it's five items about, um, it might not seem a lot, but I mean, do subscribers, do people get fatigued by that conceivably? Like the first three, four, five months, I'm sure it's like, oh, this is awesome. And then it's like, okay, I'm not ready to shop this month. So yeah. can you stop it please? Yeah, so I mean, definitely she receives packages on the cadence that she wants to. And the last thing you would ever want to do is provide a service where she felt stuck in some kind of a subscription that she couldn't get out of. I think what we find is that we're able to join customers on a style journey that really goes far beyond an individual pair of jeans. Many of our customers join us much early in their own style aesthetics. And I think through working with us and learning about brands that we carry and being able to experience the service, her style evolves. And really being able to be with her on that journey from beginning to end is, I think, where the magic of Dia really comes in. Uh, Rachel, how do you, you, you've been in the business a long time, you've dealt with traditional retailers, um, and of course, online as well for many years. How do you view like what Dia is doing? It's a really different kind of model. How does it, what does it mean oh my for- Oh I wish like one of my daughters would come up with this idea. <laughs> I have a 17 year old that is struggling with what to major in and all I can tell her is you pick your passion and that's all you can go with because you will be working really long hours and you have a choice whether your quality of life is a happy, joyful one or it's a stress-filled, anxiety-filled life. And if Ava, my 17-year-old, my could pick something like you did that is truly your passion, I mean, just to hear her speak, you know, that it's not just something that is nine to five for you. And so for me, yeah, um, it's also the perfect storm of the right time with the right person, with the right stories to tell. Uh, I think we're going to open it up now for questions from the audience. Anyone has any? Raise your hand, get up, go to the mics. I have one actually that I could start off with. Um, I'm curious how you guys both view brick and mortar opportunities um, for the Plus community. Now, you talked a lot about how for so long that the Plus community has been online, and a lot of that is obviously because there's so few things and so few brands to try on physically. Um, is, is having any sort of brick and mortar component important to you? Um, and then, Rachel, I would also be really curious if your Curvy customers are you know, very active in trying things on physically in stores. So I'll tell you that the overwhelming feedback that we hear from our community is that brick and mortar is a place of anxiety. Everything from being hesitant to ask for a larger size to fitting rooms being too small, there are many reasons why a traditional shopping experience offline has been very challenging for her. One thing that we're very big believers in, which you know, is perfectly encapsulated with the CurvyCon, is experiential commerce. Really thinking about what it means to not only be able to access product, but to actually be able to access content, to not only be able to shop, but to be inspired, um, is something that we're big believers in, um, and certainly a ton of opportunity across the board in Plus. If I had a follow-up, your styling service, there's, there's a human involved in that. Is there also software involved in that? There is a tremendous amount of software in being able to scale a service like this. How does that work? Um, so really, Many of the things that we do at DR means to an end, right? Not an end in and of themselves. So for us, the core promise that we're making our customers is that we will be able to understand her better than anyone else will, and we will put her first always. What that means is that we need to be able to listen. When there were 100 customers who we knew on a first name basis and could shop for personally, listening and incorporating her feedback was incredibly easy. Listening at scale is a very different set of activities, and that really is where 
you know, both the engineering work and the data science work becomes critical. So there's a million customers, you're not gonna staff every single one of them, certainly. You're having them, what signals do you get from the customers to be able to figure out What's, what their style is. What, yeah, so we I mean, collect an enormous amount of both structured and unstructured data from our customers. So specific you know, pieces of feedback, obviously, around I wear this size in pants and I like my shirts to fit in this way, but also things like her social media accounts. She'll share with us Pinterest boards. She shares with us tons of free response text about what she's feeling or what she's shopping for, where she's going on vacation and everything in between. So, so if I'm a, as a customer, if I sort of share my Pinterest board with your software, you can then figure out, I don't know, what colors I like, tops versus bottoms. We begin to understand you a lot better. Yeah, we begin to understand you. We were able to create a profile of how we understand you over time. And do you, do you find that people are very willing to share that that information? Absolutely. Sometimes it can be very personal, but yeah. well, we have we have deep trust with our customers, right? And at the end of the day, she's putting in us hope for a better experience, and so she is remarkably engaged, and we get an inordinate amount of feedback, all of which we love and we read and we listen to and we use to create more and more exceptional experiences for her. How much of that feedback would you say is unprompted or not required at least? So outside of the initial survey, none of the feedback that she gives us is required mm -hmm. and yet she gives it to us yeah. always. Okay, one last chance. Anyone else? <laughs> oh, there's a question back there. Hey, uh, follow up for Nadia. You mentioned the customer was kind of poorly served online and offline and that brick and mortar is a point of frustration. A lot of kind of your peer companies, maybe that started online, have gone offline for customer acquisition. Mm -hmm. Have you thought of like kind of new creative ways that you can find new acquisition channels? And then how do you think about even attribution when you're thinking about customer acquisition? That's a good question. It is a good question. So we're not offline from a experience perspective at all. So, you know, have not spent a lot of time thinking about how we might measure the kind of tangential benefits of a channel like that. Um, I think for us, we are authentically speaking to a community that represents 100 million women in this country. There are so many opportunities for us to be speaking with her, whether it's through things like the CurvyCon, through influencers, through traditional digital acquisition channels, through other channels like TV. Um, I think that there's really overall a shortage of conversation with this woman and so having clear conversations with her where she knows that she's a celebrated core consumer has actually been fairly um, has been an exciting part of this process I'll say. Thank you. All right. Um, thank, with that, Nadia, Rachel, thanks very much. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks for listening to Recode Replay. Remember to leave us a review at iTunes.com slash Recode Replay and be sure to check out our other podcasts. Every Monday, I host Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. On Thursdays, you can hear Recode Media, in which Peter Kafka interviews the smartest and most interesting people in the media world. And on Fridays, I host Too Embarrassed to Ask, along with Lauren Good of The Verge, where we answer all of your questions about consumer tech. You can find all these shows and more at recode.net or wherever you listen to your podcasts.